Good morning, Cape. Good to be with y'all. My name's uh, Josiah Lawrence, as was mentioned earlier, and I uh, pastor, I'm assistant pastor at uh, Harvest Memphis there in Memphis, Tennessee. Excited to be with you here in Cape for so many reasons, uh, one of which is just Cape played a big part, uh, Cape Bible Chapel especially, and Pastor Dan Green, uh, in the early parts of my own salvation. A guy that discipled me for about 10 years was named Brian Lewis, and he worked with Campus Outreach and and uh, had an incredible impact on my life, and, uh, and even specifically getting to work with so many folks that have been blessed so much by this church. And so I also know last week you got Eric Coer uh, was here to be with you, and just what a joy that is to be excited. I'm excited for you guys. He was another huge influence in my life very early on in my salvation. He was one of the first guys that taught me to love God's Word. <laughs> And so I'm so excited he's going to be here with you, and I'm excited I get to be here with you this morning to open God's Word for us. And so this morning we're going to be worshiping God out of Romans 5, 1 through 5. I almost failed to mention my wife and one of our two children are with me this morning. I'm incredibly grateful for Sarah and just the way that she fights to build a gospel home for us. What an incredibly important, helpful Thing. And as I talk about rejoicing and hope this morning, one of the things I rejoice in is the way that she helps me as I come home from work, as we try to grow our family together, believe the gospel more, and hope, keep this eager expectation for what God can do in our lives and our family together alive each and every day in the middle of a lot of things that don't seem like rejoicing, that seem like dirty diapers. And so thankful for her. We've got a two-year-old Emily and a, a giant eight-month-old uh, named Isaiah. He prefers to go by Zay if you meet him. He's really exciting. But uh, without any further ado, I'm excited for us to be able to worship the Lord through his word this morning. Let me read for us to that end. Let me pray for us to that end, and then I'll uh, kind of lay out where we're going to head. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are the God of hope, that you are the God who is honestly our only actual reason to hope. Lord, so we pray this morning that wherever we're coming from, that we would hear from you, that your words would break into our lives. And that if, and if we have been following you without this rejoicing and hope, Lord, that you would bring us to our knees so that we can rejoice again in what you've done for us. Lord, if, if our hope has been so weak that it's crushed by our sufferings, Lord, that we would allow you this morning to teach us about a rugged hope that is found only in you that is strong enough to walk through any circumstance, any suffering, and continue to be able to rejoice because we have a God whose hand is behind that. Lord, I pray this morning that you wouldn't leave us alone, that this wouldn't be about understanding something your Bible says, but it would be about experiencing this reality that you put before us this morning of what you've done for us and how you apply that in our everyday realities. Lord, please come and get us. Don't let us just hear from your word. Lord, let our hearts be stirred and let our lives be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title, Rejoicing in Hope. Let's think about it for a minute. Rejoicing there can also be just translated as boasting, so I may use those interchangeably a little bit as we walk through. But the word hope is translated just an eager expectation. You hear that word hope, and sometimes it sounds a little trite, but you think about it, what am I eagerly expectant for? Even this morning as you came, what are you expecting? What are you hoping for? What do you think is going to happen? As we sing these songs, as we remember and worship our Lord together, what are we eagerly expectant for in our lives, in our families? Are we fighting to, to have hope, or are we just kind of getting through so that we can sleep again or so we can watch a little Netflix at the end? 
Is that, the, is that the end of our hope? Is that we'll be able to enjoy our couches more? I love my couch, but I want to be eagerly expectant for so much more than that. What would your life currently be characterized by? Is it hope? Gosh, as I think about that, sometimes I just think about, man, I, may, I love that idea. Sounds great, but I'm a little too busy for hope. I got a lot going on. And, uh, and I just really am just trying to get through each and every day. I'm trying to love my family. I'm trying to love the people in my neighborhood that the Lord has called me and, and placed me there. I'm trying to love my coworkers and people that I meet along the day. I'm just trying to follow you and not sin too much. Let's be straight. Like, I'm just trying to get through today following you and growing a little bit as a Christian. But, but God's Word is not okay with us living our lives that way. I don't care if you've followed the Lord for 80 years or for 80 days God wants us to have an eager expectation of what He can do in our lives and what His Word will do. In, in fact, early on, when I was just came to know the Lord, uh, I was excited about it. I didn't know how to tell my guys on my dorm floor about God, and so I just bought eight boxes of Popeyes. And those were kind of, they represented the gospel or the good news to me, the good news of Popeyes. I was very excited about them. And so I just put free Popeyes on my door, and I would just basically bait and switch everybody that came in and make them listen to the gospel. And I wouldn't suggest that. It's not a good way to go about manipulating people with ice, with popsicles. Um, but it's a good example of my just excitement. God had done something in me, and I couldn't help but want to let other people know and experience this. And, and yet I was in this conversation with someone who'd been following the Lord for a long time, and they looked at me and they said, you know, that's, that's good, but you'll grow out of that. You'll get over it. You'll be just like the rest of us soon. I just remember being so sad for that man. And I, I looked up to him in so many ways, but so sad. And, the, and I also look back now and realize, wow, how arrogant I was as well. That I would think that there wouldn't come days where my hope gets beat up a little bit. And where the reality of how hard it is to follow Christ in the middle of just a day at a time, in the middle of friends and family and, and coworkers that don't always encourage that. And so to, to think about how weak that hope was that I was so proud of in that moment. And yet, this morning, God teaches us in His Word that we can have a hope that is rugged, that is strong enough to stand in the midst of any suffering that we face. Not just stand, but rejoice. And so that's where we're headed today, that we would rejoice in hope. And the sad truth for me is that now I'm constantly on the edge. I'm fighting not to grow out of that excitement, to not lose that expectation. It's a day-by-day thing. And it's honestly, at times, a a couple hour-by-couple-hour reality. Am I going to expect God to work through this, or am I going to get caught up in just wanting to get through it or make it end or see if I can control the situation by trusting in myself? And so today, God calls us to much more than just being on the edge of that. And He calls us to do it realizing that it's not, okay, you know, I've saved you, you're welcome, now everything's going to go well. He says in 1 Peter 4, uh, 12 and 13, he talks about don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised, it's coming. And yet, he says in that very same moment, if you share in the sufferings of Christ, you get to share in the glories of Christ. And so sometimes I don't rejoice in hope because I'm not sharing in much glory. And I don't share in much glory because... I think about my sufferings very differently than what God wants me to. So that's, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to let God's Word instruct our hearts how to feel, instruct our minds how to think differently, and teach us how to act in a very different way. In the first two verses, we'll see why we rejoice in our hope. 
And then in the, the last three, we'll see the how. How is that worked out in the midst of real things? So let me read for us from Romans 5, 1 through 5. If you guys want to follow along, I'm in the ESV, if that's helpful. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's pretty incredible, pretty exciting. I hope that my words today and just give us a tenth of what is possible. God's word here is, is reaching to the heights of something that we need to experience, and yet it's so rare that we would. And if we can experience a little bit of this, I can't imagine those around us who are investigating, who are interested in our God, not falling on their face and saying, I want more of that right now. Give me that. So let's walk through these. We're just going to go a couple phrases at a time. So the first one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Paul has taken a lot of this whole book of Romans to, to teach us through what it means to actually be justified by faith, to, to, for it to be just as if I'd never sinned, not because I haven't sinned, but because I trust in one who hasn't, it, that my faith would be in him. So to be justified by faith stands against this idea of being justified by my own works. And so if I'm just going to put it simply, I'm going to take Romans 3.21 through all of chapter 4 that explains that. If you want to look into that more and understand it, Paul does an incredible job there. And I'm going to say it real simply like this. If we are right with God, it is because we trust in God's promises and not because we trust in the promises that we try to make God. So I'll say it again. If we're right with God, it's because we trust in His promises, not the promises that we make to Him. I don't know about you guys, but I would consistently try to make God promises growing up. I grew up around Christianity to some extent, and I knew there were certain things maybe I should do more of and other things I shouldn't do as much of, and I would promise God all the time how I was going to follow Him in this way or, or love Him more. And In fact, I even made promises to myself about other things. I was promised I'm going to practice basketball more so that I can really be exactly as good as Michael Jordan. I also wanted to practice thinking more to realize how impossible that was. But that came later. Uh, eagerly expectant for other things these days. But so excited. I was so excited about these promises I would make God, and I would let myself down over and over again. Not only would I break his law, I'd just make up my own law, and then I'd break that too. I couldn't even follow my own rules. It was kind of ridiculous, but it took me a long time to get it. We need to understand this, that we're justified by faith. We've got to understand this because otherwise we will run this rat race of Christianity that makes Christianity into a really terrible habit and not a life-changing reality. There's a lot of other things you could do better than being here. If this is just about you being good, this is just about you being good enough to tell somebody that, that you're not that bad of a person. There's a, there's a lot of other great ways to do it, but God is promising us he wants to transform who we are. That's worth giving up everything. That's worth suffering. It's funny, there's something really important. There's a story, there's six kids in my family growing up. I was the oldest. We would, you know, this probably surprises you, but we would occasionally wrong one another uh, or sin in ways or, you know, we would fight or raise our voices. I mean, I know you're surprised. It's really, it's really rare in families, but um, we would be, our parents were trying to parent us well and they would, you know, we would have to apologize. And then they were saying, you know what, you need to, 
also say that you love your brother or sister afterwards. And so as the sinful little kids that we were and still are, we would say, you know, I forgive you and I love you. And then kind of under our breath, but I don't have to like you. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like, well, I love you, but I don't have to like you. Uh, there's all the kids really got that. You're right there right now. It's exciting. But uh, the problem with that, there's actually a lot of problems. But one of the problems I want to draw our attention to this morning is that I think God thinks that about me right now. I think God says, you know what, Josiah, my son died for you. I forgive you. I love you, but I, but I don't have to like you. If you would just get it together a little bit more, I would bless you more. I would allow you to know who I am. I would, I would really grow you more. I think that God still interacts with me like that. And so today's passage comes straight at that, blows it up, puts that to the side, and so there's this incredibly new way to live. There's this hope that's worth rejoicing in rather than your own effort that you just perform and never get what you think you're going to get out of. So what happens because we're justified by faith? There's all kinds of things, but this verse hits on two of them especially. The first one, it says that we have peace with God. It's easy to read that and just kind of go past it and say, yeah, of course I've got peace with God. You know, God's love, I'm pretty good, I'm here at church. i got peace with God and not remember this reality that we were his enemies, that we were at war with him. It wasn't just, okay, yeah, you know, I was on the, on, in line here and God picked me and I was one of the ones, you know, that I got saved and others didn't or I figured it out. God, you're welcome that I'm on your team now. No, we were his enemies. We were at war with him and he came down, made made it right with us, that he allowed us to be his. A few verses later in Romans 5, Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We need to remember what this peace cost. To the degree that we remember that, we'll rejoice in what God's done. To the degree that we take advantage and pretend that that's not what it really costs, that, that I really didn't, that God didn't have to die for me, that I became a Christian because I read my Bible or any other list of things, to that degree, we won't rejoice in hope of his glory. We'll boast in our own glory. God wants us to understand that we, we have peace with him, that it cost him so much. In Ephesians 2, 12 through the first part of 14, we see this. Remember that it, you, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And the verse goes on to talk about how he also makes our peace, how he breaks down our divisions from each other and brings us together as he brings us to God. But I want us to get here. He says that he is our peace, and it's only by the blood of Christ. I remember when I was talking with folks on the college campus sometimes, I would ask them, why do you think God had to kill his own son? That's kind of crazy. That's how bad I was. That's how bad I am. If God does anything less than that, it's not enough to save me. It's not enough to allow me to be at peace with God. So it's good for us to have to remember that so that we can rejoice in the reality of what he's done for us. We have peace with God. It's incredible, too. He didn't just call a truce, but he adopted us into his family. He didn't just call a ceasefire, but he, he fired on himself, on his own son, so that we might eat at his table with him. It's incredible for us to think about that. On top of this, his peace is not just a removal of negative things. It's this unique peace. The Hebrew people, people all over the world have different concepts of peace. In the Hebrew people, the Israelites, God's people had this unique word that is shalom. And it doesn't just mean 
hey, the bad things are gone. It also means everything that could possibly be right is right. All is right with the world. And I imagine, you know, for some of us in different days with our roommates, with our wives, with those closest to us, sometimes it feels like a win just not to fight for a week or two. It's like, man, we're at peace because we're not at war. We're at peace right now. But what God says is there is so much more possible. There's this intimacy and relationship and joy and contentment and satisfaction in this peace that I'm giving to you. In fact, in John 14, 27, Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, is speaking to his disciples and he says, you know what, my peace I give to you. And it's not the same type of peace that this world talks about. It's a unique peace. It's a peace that when Jesus was about to be crucified, stood boldly and silently, not having to defend himself because he wasn't at war. He was bringing peace into the midst of our war. And it's pretty incredible for us to think about and realize this. Two ways that were helpful for me is that justification by faith that leads to this peace means this. There is nothing I could ever do bad enough to make me God's enemy again. He's not holding any sin against me. Now the reality is we may be holding sins against ourselves and sinning against our Savior as we do so. We need to believe that this peace is true about our lives if we have trusted in Christ. Part of the reason we may not rejoice is that we are pretending we haven't been given peace. We're pretending that God's not happy with us. We're pretending that we don't stand in His favor. And on the other side of it, just to realize that there's nothing else good that is lacking in my relationship with God. He's not waiting on me to do one more good thing before He's happy with me. He's not waiting on me to get to some point. And he's like, I really love that version of you that's this amount of growth and, and relationship. And when you stop sinning in this way, then I'll really love you. We think that beating ourselves up about our sin and making ourselves feel bad is going to lead to more of what God wants. But God's saying, no, the only way you'll ever walk forward is if you receive this peace I'm giving to you. If you realize that you are justified by faith, not by your works. If you realize that when you try to make yourself feel bad, you're actually fighting against my gospel and what I've done for you. And that you would make so much more progress in your faith if you stopped thinking so much about the progress in your faith you were trying to make and you just believed what I've told you. It was pretty incredible, this peace that he's given us. To be honest, that's enough reason to stop and rejoice right there. And as we close that first point, there's one thing I wanted us to get. John MacArthur, a pastor in California, he had done a study on different um, people in the world and the, the words they had for peace. And there was this Indian tribe in Bolivia that had this unique word for peace. And it was beautiful. What it means is, what, when you translate their word, it means to sit down in one's heart. So what God's telling us this morning is that if we're justified by faith, we can sit down in one's heart. We don't have to run around trying to prove ourselves to others, trying to make up for our past. We don't have to run around trying to be good enough. We can sit down in our heart in what Christ has already done for us. So as we move forward, we also see that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Pretty incredible thing that we get to stand in grace. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, who could stand? The point being, God is so holy that if we were standing before Him, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to. If He was keeping up with our sins, we wouldn't have a chance. And yet he's saying, because of Christ, we get to stand. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's like going into the king's court as his enemy who's been doing things against him all the time, and, and he gives you his favor. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
But God doesn't just let us in. He gives us favor. That word grace means unmerited or undeserved favor. And so he's saying, not, not only are you in, but I like you. And so he goes full circle back to me and my siblings growing up and tells us that we stand in grace. It's not that hard to understand this concept mentally, but what's hard to do is believe it a day at a time. To wake up tomorrow and don't think that you have to earn everybody's approval all over again. To wake up tomorrow and remember what God has done for you. You know, and part of the challenge with me is sometimes I want to stand in my own effort. I want to get credit for the things that I do. I want to get credit for washing the dishes or something like that. I want to get credit for whatever I've done at work. And God is saying, you can settle for that credit if you want, but it will let you down. And we talk about this in a minute when our hope is exposed, but it will lead you to shame. It will last for a little while but it falls far short of what I have to offer. Sometimes I need to realize that I need to repent of wanting to trust in myself and just remember what he's done for me. How kind it is that we have a God that reminds us every day, if we, if we will just listen, of how he loves us and how it's so different than what the world thinks about our suffering, about our shame. About our shame. There's simply no worry left in our minds when we're standing in grace. If God approves of us, then we can live confidently to serve others rather than having to have them serve us by giving us their approval. We don't have to spend our whole life trying to run on this rat wheel to prove ourselves. We can start saying, because I've been given so much, I can live for someone else. I can think about something at work where how can I benefit those around me? I can think about a major of how can I do something that really benefits the world rather than just makes the most money. I can begin to think differently if I've been justified by faith, if I have peace with God, if I stand in grace. And you know what that leads me to? It leads me to rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. If, if these things that we're hearing about are just a part of the glory of God, this peace that he gives us, this grace that we stand in, if that's just a part of his glory, you know what? I'm eagerly expectant for more. I want to see more, and I want each of us to see more. I want everybody here in Cape and back in Memphis, I want them to see this type of glory because that's worth living for. That's something better than a yacht, than a boat, than going fishing, than hunting, than, than chilling, than, than just watching Netflix. That's greater than the perfect family picture where everything looks right and then we fight afterwards for the rest of the evening. Gosh, that's better. I want that kind of glory to live for. I want to rejoice in that. If we realize we're justified by faith, this is what God lays before us as an opportunity. If we believe what Jesus has done for us, it changes our rejoicing. And I, I mentioned at the beginning that word can also be Translated boasting. It changes our boasting. God wants us to see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. God knows that if it was a result of works, if we were justified by our works, we would boast. And he knows something else. He knows that it would break down. We may be able to make it last a little while until we let ourselves down again, until we let everybody around us down again. I don't want to be negative, but I want us to be realistic and say there's something better. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but someone asked me a question one time that really messed with me and kind of annoyed me, honestly, but uh, now I'm going to annoy you with it, so you're welcome. But uh, he said, Josiah, you know, you really want to trust in yourself here. And, and I do, naturally, that's what we want to do. And you know, sometimes it's like, man, I don't know who else I can trust. I guess I'm the best option. But he, he asked me, who's let you down most in your life? And I, you know, sat for a minute and thought and you know, I was kind of already mad at him because I sort of knew the answer and didn't want to admit it. And, you know, walked by a mirror. It's like, oh, man, there he is. 
I'm the person that's let me down most in my life. I'm the person. Who, who do I have the most evidence that I shouldn't trust? Myself. I've been gathering that evidence my entire life. And to be honest, when I talk with people about why following Christ makes so much sense, one of the first things is this realization of my sin, this realization that I can't trust in myself. Is the beginning for me to realize, man, is, the, is there someone trustworthy out there? Is there someone worthy that I can place my entire life on? Not just bounce around and try to stay busy so I don't notice it. Not just climb a ladder to get to the top and realize I didn't even want to be there. But something I can place my entire life in that's worthy of my trust. That's what we can rejoice in. God wants us to boast in Him because He's the only one worthy of boasting and He's the only one that can hold up the weight of our lives and our expectations. So what if we don't rejoice in the glory of the Lord? What if we hear this and we're like, that sounds great. Seems like something I should do. And I don't. What do we do then? I think there's two things we need to examine our relationship with. One, we may need to examine our relationship with the Lord. And I say this carefully because I don't intend to cause you to doubt your salvation. But I know in my own life, for much of my life, I did Christian things. I tried to do good things because I wanted to trust in myself and I was trying to use Christian things to prove how valuable I was. And so for about age 6 to age 18, that was me, the leader of the youth group, the guy that people would look at and say, man, it seems like that guy's a Christian. And yet everything I was doing was to build up my own boasting in myself. And so I needed to examine. You know, I didn't rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I was weighed down under the weight of my own performance trying to do better and better. I didn't rejoice. And so I want you to potentially think through, am I trusting in this justification by faith? Or am I just giving myself new rules to justify myself by works? And you may today experience that peace with God, that standing in grace that you may have never known, even though you may have been sitting in church your whole life. And so I want us to consider that. But for many of us, we don't necessarily, that's not the answer. We, we really do trust the Lord. We know Him. We want more of Him, but we struggle. The other thing we need to examine our relationship with is we need to examine our relationship with suffering and how we think about it. We've probably been through a decent amount of it. And rejoicing in our hope in this glory of God seems a little bit harder and a little bit harder unless we begin to see suffering through the lenses that God gives us here in His Word. And if we see it through this way, we can rejoice even in those sufferings. This leads us to our second main point, that, that God wants us to rejoice in our suffering. He wants to say, not only did I save you and give you peace and you stand in my grace, you, you came to know me, you are mine, but that relationship can handle the pain and the reality of the life you're about to live for however many more years to you with me. This Christianity is not just for Sunday morning and for eternity. It's for every day throughout the week. And unless we get this, those who say, well, Christianity is just, you know, you're just faking it on Sunday so you feel better. They've got a lot of, they've got a lot of good points. What we want to be is those Christians that in the middle of anything going on, they can look at us and say, man, he's hurting. But there's something different. Like God's doing something with that suffering. It's productive. It's not just pointless. Man, he's got this hope I can't explain. He hurts and it's real, but, but also he's rejoicing. 
in this God in the midst of it. He didn't just wait till the end. He didn't just whine the whole time and then he's happy. He was actually in the middle of his pain also seeing this bigger picture. I want that for us. God wants that for us this morning. It's funny, I'm reading along. Paul's saying, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm like, yes, great idea, Paul. He says, rejoice in suffering. I'm kind of like, all right, Paul, see you later. That's a little weird. Really bad idea, you know? And so it's important that we realize he's not saying rejoice in the suffering itself, but rejoice in what God's doing through it. That's important for us to get. Uh, And as we do so, let's continue to look through this. Not only that, but we rejoice in suffering. It's like he's saying, you know, you get to rejoice in hope, and, and you also get to rejoice in suffering. Bottom line, when I hear that, I realize i got to understand this more deeply. This world's system of dealing with suffering is really not dealing with it at all. It's either denial or avoidance. In fact, the best thing we can hope for in this life apart from Christ is just to avoid to dodge as much suffering as we can. The picture that, that came in my own mind as I thought through the different ways that this world and and, and we as believers have an opportunity to deal with suffering. One side is I just close my eyes and I just run through the minefield of life. And I try to stay, as, I just run as fast as I can, just hoping I make it as far as I can before something tragic happens. And I'm destroyed by my blindness, by my denial, and by the fact that I tried to trust in myself in that minefield. But part of what Christ is saying is, is he, he knows where all those minds are. He's the one that even made the minefield in the first place. And what he wants is that we realize that this suffering is so real that we actually follow him and trust him. And that he leads us through there. And I'm not saying that we avoid all pain. But that in the midst of, if there is any pain, if we do stub our toe, or if we do have to learn to climb this rock to get over this, we realize that we're doing that because he's leading us ultimately to hope into safety, into the most of life that we could possibly have. In the same way that with my little two-year-old, I have to let her fall down. It's, I hate it so badly. But I also know if I'm going to be a good father, there has to be some pain so that she can learn to walk, to run. She has to go through some of those things. But I tell you one thing, I'm going to allow her to experience the least amount of pain possible. And I'm going to do my best that every moment of pain she ever experiences is productive and not a waste. And if I, a messed up father, say that, then imagine what our Father in heaven says to us about the suffering that we're going through. There's not one ounce of it that he's wasting if we will turn to him. So I want us to see through our suffering in these passages, these couple verses, that there's three things that he does through it. There's a lot more than that, but there's three mentioned in these couple verses. One is that hope is matured. We see this process knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Our usual goal with suffering is to avoid it or just make it stop. But God's goal is that he might do something through it. And so let's look at what he wants to do through it. It says here that suffering produces endurance. In one sense, I get that. You know, in in a lot of things in life, uh, suffering or you, you have to work out, you have to break down your muscles so that they can build back up. That's an aspect of suffering to some degree you know in your relationships there's an aspect of suffering to get to what's really best where you have to forgive and really stick with people and love them and work through things so I understand that to some degree but in another sense as I'm reading through this I know the Bible's true but I hear it and I think you know sometimes sometimes suffering doesn't lead to endurance it just leads to quitting sometimes suffering just hurts 
And so what is the difference between this suffering that's being talked about here that leads to endurance, that produces endurance? That word there, produces, means cultivates. This word that cultivates endurance rather than the suffering that just leads to pain and quitting or running away. I've got an illustration for us. You know, if you imagine two guys both working incredibly and boring jobs. For some of you, this is really easy. Some of you, this is really hard. Those of you who are, you know, parachute instructors or whatever have a hard time imagining this situation. But two incredibly boring jobs. I'm picturing no windows, very small cubicle, uh, maybe an old computer that doesn't work very well, and uh, a chair that's like sitting sideways or something, so you're kind of already having a hard time. That's the picture. Come with me. And, uh, and one guy's told, you know what, okay, we're going to have you sit in here and just do data entry of random things that is completely, completely meaningless for the next year, and at the end, we're going to give you $13,000 and no benefits. You're welcome. And the other guy... They're saying, you have the exact same job, and yet at the end of this year, your family's going to be taken care of for the rest of your life, and we're going to give you $150 million. There's an there's a interesting difference of what's happening in their endurance. They're both having an aspect of suffering, but their endurance is completely different because the hope that lies at the end of it is completely different. And so that's what God wants us to see, that when we realize the hope of what God's done for us, it produces endurance even through suffering. And that endurance produces character. I love the word character there. It talks about the word character means to pass the test. And, and for those of you in school or those of you who remember, the point of passing a test doesn't just mean that the test is over. Sometimes you feel better for a minute, but then the grade comes later. The point of passing a test is to get the right answers on the test. That's what it means to pass the test. If you didn't know that, you're welcome. That was for free. You're going to do so much better in school now. Um, really proud of you guys. But, uh, but this, it's true. God doesn't want us just to endure, just to get through suffering, even to get through it remembering this hope. He wants us to pass the test. And so what is the test? We see it throughout the Bible. We see you know, one of God's people, Abraham, he's promised that he's going to have a whole nation of children. And he doesn't have children most of his life. Finally, at the end, he has his child. And God says, you know what? I want you to sacrifice this child. And it's, and it's an incredible story. There's a lot of, of amazing things we can learn from it. But one of the things we learn is that what God wanted was not that through enduring, Abraham would be broken, but that Abraham's trust in himself would be broken. He wanted him to endure long enough for his trust in himself to be broken. And then that he would have a different character altogether, a Christ-like character that trusts in what God does rather than just tries to fix it myself, that tries to just pull myself up by my, boot, my bootstraps and make it happen. The answer that God is looking for us to get is to trust Him. He doesn't just want to break us. I imagine Jesus' disciples at His crucifixion thinking, how in the world does this make any sense? Just like us in a lot of the middle, the middle of the things that are going on with us, we wonder, how, how are you going to use this for anything good? And yet the, the most wrong scenario, the most what seems pointless suffering of all time, the guy that has done nothing wrong ever, dying on a cross, ends up revealing God's love in a way that just blows us away. We begin to see when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, that what God wanted was for him to trust him. And what God did with that pain was something pretty incredible to make salvation possible for all of us. And so if God can take suffering that looks that pointless, you know, we look back on the cross, we forget what that would have been like. 
those disciples just sitting there thinking, man, I just wasted the last couple years of my life. I thought he was going to bring this kingdom, and he's, he's dead. This is over. You know, they thought, they, they thought, man, this was so pointless. And yet God said, no, I'm doing something through this. I'm bringing about a character that if you look on those disciples later, and it's in connection to the Holy Spirit, who we're about to talk about, but you look at those disciples later, they're people that turn the world upside down, that are beaten, that can't be stopped no matter what, that stand up and most of them eventually die for this hope because their endurance showed a proven character in the one they followed. And so it produced a proven character. They passed the test. They eventually stopped trusting themselves and were able to put their trust in Christ. God loves us so much that He will allow us to suffer. He will even allow us to be confused in that suffering if it means that we will be freed from the lie of trusting anything more than Him. He loves us so much He will let us suffer so that we will be freed from the lie of trusting anything more than Him. Our goal, like I said, is not just to get through the suffering, but ultimately to get the right answer, to realize what God is doing in it. And then lastly, we see that that character produces hope. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but one of the things I wanted us to understand is that when hope is tested, then it, and it passes that test, then that hope is given more glory. You know, you see something simple like a chair up here, and I put a 60-pound person in it, and the chair falls down. The chair and that person are not receiving glory. They are receiving shame. But if I take a similar-looking chair and I can somehow stack five, six tons on it, that chair passes that test of suffering and receives much more glory. You realize how amazing that chair is by all that it can hold up under. And so part of what Christ is telling us is this character produces hope because our character is not, okay, I'm strong enough to handle it now, but I'm weak enough to know that I'm going to run straight to Christ with every suffering I ever have. So this character is not, oh, I got this now. It's I have him. And I'm going to Him. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to run to Him. I'm going to place my hope in Him rather than how this works out. And so God is transforming our character so that it will produce hope. We can plant seeds. We can water. We can understand this process. But I want us to go back to that word produce there, that endurance produces character, produces uh, hope. That word, like I mentioned, is cultivate. It's a farming word. And I, I, I don't do any farming, even though I grew up in Arkansas. But uh, I love that this is the word God chose. Because sometimes it can be easy for us to try to make this verse into a formula. And now I understand suffering, and so I shouldn't feel it anymore. What God's saying is understanding this is incredibly helpful. Running to me is the answer, but it's still a process. We can plant and we can water, but God brings the rain. He grows this reality of hope in us. Uh, before we had any children, my wife and I, she had a miscarriage, and it was a really painful situation. It was really hard for us. We took a few days. These verses were some of the ones that God had allowed us to run to through some people coming around us and trying to help us, and uh, we were just kind of numb, honestly. I remember reading these verses and just thinking, yeah, it sounds good. I don't feel it at all. But I also remember a few days later, God just allowed those, these verses to come alive. I, I began to realize that God knew what was going on, that he was working through this scenario, that I saw just an ounce of what he was going to do as far as the glory of this relationship that where me and my wife were learning to trust him in the middle of more pain than we'd experienced, wondering if we could have children. And yet, there's this smile that came across my face. 
probably three days in, four days in, and I remember feeling bad that I was happy. I remember wondering, is that okay? And I remember that God took me back to these verses and He said, you're not making light of this suffering. You're now able to rejoice in suffering. And you can't control me. This is, you're cultivating it. You can believe it. You can seek it. But you, can't, you, can't, you don't control me, but I'm going to give you this. And I just remember, man, this smile is more real than almost any smile I've ever had. Because now this smile has proven character. This, this smile's been through. It's been matured. This hope is so much harder to take away. God, if you never give us children, you, I'm still rejoicing. It's, it's greater than it was before. And we still mourn. And that's the other thing. I just wanted to mention, understanding this, don't go beat people up with these verses, telling them how they should understand that God's working through their suffering so they shouldn't feel bad. God came down in the person of His Son, knowing that He was bringing the answers. And yet, even right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He weeps with His sisters about Lazarus being dead. And I'm like, is He faking it? No, no, He cares deeply. And the pain and the suffering that people are going through is real. And it's, we're cultivating this hope, but we have to let it happen in the time that God brings it about. So sit with people, love them, slowly and gently encourage them about the truth. But give it time and realize that we need to be in pain with people. And that that is even yet another opportunity to rejoice in suffering eventually. Just wanted to mention that as a side. I don't want people going out, jumping in. Hey, something terrible happened. You should be okay because of this. No, this is true, but it's cultivated. It's something that happens over time. So secondly, I wanted us to see not only is our hope matured, but our hope is exposed. It's interesting. We see this in two ways. One, we see this in our willingness to endure. I'm willing to endure suffering based on whatever my hope is. So if my hope is my own comfort and pleasure, not really willing to endure much suffering. Uh, if, if the hope that I have is just that my life will be kind of easy, then I'm not interested in, in enduring much suffering. If my hope, in another sense, if my hope is my own glory, then I'll endure some suffering as long as I'm getting appropriate comp compensation, like those two guys we talked about earlier. As long as I'm getting pats on the back, I'll endure suffering. But if, but if my hope is the glory of God, then I will be able, like 1 Peter 4 talked about earlier, I'll be able to endure the sufferings that come with following Christ so that I can receive the glory that comes with Christ. And so our and willingness to endure reveals our hope. But not only that, we also see our hope in that here that, you know, you see there at the end it says, it produces a hope that does not put us to shame. That's incredible. Like that chair earlier, anytime a hope fails under the test of suffering, then there's shame. That person is on the floor of the chair, there's not much glory there, there's shame when we hope in something and it lets us down. And a lot of us feel the shame. We've got all kinds of that shame in our lives from different things that we've trusted in. And so I don't have to convince you about that being true, but what God is saying is there is a hope placed before you day, today that, that will never lead to shame, that leads to more and more rejoicing because it's worth and, and it's trustworthy in the midst of everything that we could experience. You know, I refer back to that person that lets us down the most. That's us. I don't want my glory and shame to be based on how I'm doing. I want it to be based on what Christ has done for me. So we see this in if our hope puts us to shame, we realize, man, my hope's being exposed. 
And that's part of what God did in that story about the miscarriage is I realized, man, I have so much hope in having kids and in not having these painful situations. And I can't place my hope there because I, I, we will suffer. And we don't know for sure what God's going to do. But I can place my hope in this God who never changes in the ways that he loves us. And what's incredible is it sounds a little bit trite, but I'll say it a million times because I've felt it. I've lived it. I tell you that smile's real because I just, I remember it. It's one of those things that's just amazing in my own life to get to point back to and praise the Lord for. And this is important in one other way. I want us to realize that sometimes we compare our suffering with each other and decide that ours doesn't really matter because it's not as bad as somebody's over there. Just know that when you do that, you're robbing God of an opportunity to prove himself trustworthy again. And you're probably lying to yourself. That suffering, as small as it might be to as great as it might be, is enough to bring to God, to let him prove himself trustworthy over and over again. You don't have to act like you're okay. You can come to him. As Christians, we don't have to act like everything's okay. What we get to do is something even better. We get to be honest, and then we get to rejoice in hope. That's a lot better than just faking it every day and acting like we're okay. We get to be honest, and God actually does something about it. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I'm really excited I get to follow Jesus. This is great. You're welcome. So don't waste your suffering. So lastly, I want us to see one more thing. God's given us this peace. We are standing in grace because of our trust that we're justified by faith. We rejoice in hope, and he's building this rugged, hope in us that's actually been through some things, but he also guarantees it. He guarantees this hope by two things. One, he sends us his Holy Spirit as the down payment of what we will one day experience. And so I want you to get this, but this isn't information that you can understand. This is a person that you must experience. This Holy Spirit is the promise that God gives us when we come to know him, that he indwells us and the promise that Jesus made is that it's better that we have the Holy Spirit than if he was here himself. And so I just want you to know, sometimes in church we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. Don't be. He is incredible. Run to him. Those moments where God brings something you understood to a way where you're like, oh, now I know it. Now I get it. That's the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that God says that he does is he takes what was Jesus's and he gives it to us. He experientially applies what God has done to our everyday experience. And so this morning, I hope you don't just take a few notes and write down some good thoughts. I hope you walk out of here desperate that God's Spirit would apply this love that He gives us to your heart more and more. And the second thing is just we see in the smallest of ways how God's love is so much more than we realize. Just this little phrase, poured out. It means that He would express it without restraint. And I don't know about you guys, but in the middle of suffering, sometimes I feel like God's holding back on me a little bit. And yet he's saying, if we will trust him, if we will go to him, if we will endure, if we will let suffering do its work, then we will have this hope that doesn't lead us to shame and that we will experience this love through the Holy Spirit that is holding nothing back. I want so much more of that. I want to repent of the ways that I'm running and trusting in myself, not because, oh, then I'll be a good Christian. No, I want that. I want that for you and each one of us. That's what Christianity is calling us to. So much more than we sometimes live for. That word poured out is actually the same word from Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says, my blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. 
So he unrestrainedly poured out his own blood so that our sins might be forgiven. He is pouring out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So today as we finish, what do we believe this Christian life is? Do we believe it's just getting through it? Are we going to fight to rejoice until the day that we die or are we going to kind of just let it fade away? Are we going to pretend that our sufferings are God holding out on us or are we going to endure trusting in Christ and watch what He can do with them? Let me pray for us. Close us down. Father, thank You. Thank You for who You are. Thank You for who You are in our lives. Lord, as I share these things this morning, I'm, I'm convicted. I want to believe. I want to live these things so much more so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the truth of what it teaches us, what it tells us. Lord, don't let us believe the lies of this world that we just, just kind of have to deal with suffering and just get through it. Don't let us settle for a Christian life. Don't let us pretend that following you is so little when you've offered us so much. Lord, let us rejoice in hope. Let us remember that you've made peace with us and that you've given us your peace. Let us remember that we stand in grace. And Lord, mature our hopes, expose them when you need to, and guarantee them, Lord, by sending your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.